the words, why have you forsaken me? Are, in my opinion, the single most awful statement in the entire Bible. I don't think you'll go into the Old Testament and find a statement that is more horrendous, more awful than that statement. You look at the New Testament, you're not going to find it in any of the epistles, you're not going to find it in any of Paul's writings, you're not going to find it in Revelation, you're not going to find it in anywhere else in the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life. In this book, this, 60, this collection of 66 different books that we call the Bible, this statement that we are preaching on this morning is by far the worst statement in the entire Bible. To me, personally, that gives it a certain degree of significance. I want to deal with this passage properly this morning. It's not a fun passage. And it's a shocking passage to a degree. For me, all the statements that we will be uh, studying here in this sermon series, The Dying Words of Jesus, this one's the most shocking. It makes sense to me. Or at least I can make sense of it. Let me put it that way. Jesus crying out, Father, forgive them. I can make sense of Jesus telling the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise. I can make sense of Jesus saying to his mother, behold your son, and to his disciple, behold your mother. Those things make sense. But this statement, why have you forsaken me, God, is a difficult statement to grasp. It's a cry that all of us have made at one point or another. And if you haven't actually said it, you have at least thought it. But it's also a statement that none of us can truly say. We have never been forsaken by God. There are times that we may have felt that way, and you can look back in history and see times others felt that way. I think of Israel, 400 years of slavery. But God was with them and increased them in numbers. He blessed them in spite, right in the face of the very oppression they were in. They grew stronger and stronger as a nation. Eventually, he leads them to the Red Sea. And you know the story. There they are, basically saying, God, here we are at the Red Sea. Why have you forsaken us? God tells Moses to take his staff out and part the waters. And we see the waters part, and we see God had not forsaken them. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faithful, refusing to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and it would seem as if God had forsaken them when those soldiers grabbed them, bound them up, took them to the fire, and the moment that we see them thrown into that fire, it would seem for a brief moment as if they'd been forsaken by God, abandoned, left alone. That's what the word means. Only to find that they were unharmed and there in the midst of the fire with them was the fourth man who looked like the Son of God there with them. God had not abandoned. God has never abandoned us. He's not forsaken us. But here, David said that, 
I believe his exact words that he was old and he's never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their children begging bread. Never seen the righteous forsaken. But here, we see the righteous one forsaken. This is a strange moment in history indeed. This morning, I want us to look at seven things we can learn, seven things we see when the Father forsook the Son. Number one, we see the horror of sin and the unbearable cost that it requires. The horror of sin. We see it in uh, two different uh, lenses. First of all, from the side of what sinners are capable of. Here is Christ crucified by the hands of wicked men and innocent man who had not only done nothing wrong, but had spent his life doing right. Healing the sick. Feeding the hungry. Giving sight to the blind. Here he is crucified. And not only is he crucified, not only is he dying, but he's being mocked. We've studied that in the weeks past. We see the horror of sin just the ability of the human heart to be wicked beyond our wildest imagination. But we also see the horror of it from the other lens of how God deals with it. God is dealing with sin through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He wouldn't have to deal with it through us. And we look at this awful cost that was paid where the Father, the word forsake, it it, it means to turn away from or abandon. Where the Father left the Son to do it by Himself. To pay the cost of your sin and my sin. We see the horror of sin, brothers and sisters. The depravity of the human heart and its hatred for God. Men loving darkness rather than the light. The entire crowd preferring a murderer to be released instead of the prince of life. We see the power of Satan to warp, alter, and control the hearts and minds of men. We see the unbearable cost. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. You know, we trivialize sin in our, I would say our culture, but the truth is sin has always been trivialized. We minimize the real cost of it. I think this is one of the reasons there's so little preaching about the cross anymore in the church. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would have to suffer such a horrible death for sins that aren't that bad. That doesn't make sense. And we minimize the awful cost of sin. 
You want to know how awful sin is? Look at the cost that had to be paid. And you've got to take control of your mind and your heart, child of God, and quit believing the lies of the devil that there is these little sins that don't matter much. Think about the sin of the original sin. Adam and Eve being simply told not to eat of a particular fruit. One tree. You know, when Satan shows up, I know this is a strange analogy because there was only Adam and Eve, but just follow me for a minute. It's the best I got to work with. When Satan shows up, he's not talking Eve into having an affair on her husband. No, it's not some major sin. He's not talking to Eve about some murderous plot to kill her husband or do something incredibly wicked. No, it's just eat the fruit. I mean, come on, is that really that big of a sin? Well, it happens to be the sin that led to the entire downfall of mankind. And the devil wants to get in our mind and our heart and deceive us into thinking that somehow, some way, sin's not that big of a deal. All I can tell you this morning is if you believe that, you are absolutely brainwashed by darkness itself. And if you're making excuses and justifying sin in your life, you are at odds with God himself and with his word. It's a dangerous thing to sin. We see the horror of sin. The father had to forsake the son and leave him there alone because of sin. We see the awful cost. No wonder the wages of sin is death. You know, it's not only sinning against God. Now, this is true. When we sin, when we break God's law, we are sinning against God. But I want to submit to you there was this equally uh, wrong and wicked thing that we do when we sin. We lie about who God is. Here's what the Bible says about you and I as men and women. The Bible says we were created in the image of God. Our goal is to reflect Him. That's our goal. Our command, our calling, the reason for which we are created, it's deeper than just a goal. We were created to be the image of God. And so I should represent him. I should be his ambassador. You should learn something about God himself when you witness me. If you're a Christian this morning, and whether you're a Christian or not, man was created in the image of God. So people should be able to look at us and learn something about God. Instead, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we lust. We sin. And we give God a bad name. We give God a bad character because we don't represent the very God we were created to be like. And I will submit to you that is a great evil. 
It is a great responsibility when we realize that my life is not about me, it's not about representing me, it's not about building my little kingdom. I have one purpose, and that is to point people to God. I need to live a life that is honoring to Him. I represent Him. And when people look to me, they should be able to see truthfulness. They should be able to see selflessness. They should be able to see love that is serving. They should be able to see a person whose life reflects the very God that I was created in His image. And when I choose to not do that, and I choose to poorly reflect the perfect and holy God who created me, that's as great as an evil as simply breaking his laws and sinning against him. We see the horror of sin. It is an awful thing. No wonder the wages of it are death. Number two this morning, we see the absolute holiness and the inflexible justice of God. The absolute holiness of God. God is holy. He cannot change. He cannot decide that He will no longer be righteous. He cannot decide that and because things are so bad and people are so evil that in order for us to have a relationship with him, he's just going to sweep things under the carpet. He cannot do that. He is holy. And he has what I will call inflexible justice. There's no room. What is right is right. What is wrong is wrong. And sin and evil must be punished. We see that in the father forsaking the son. There is nothing more that God could have done to show his inflexible justice. Think about it for a moment. It's one thing, it's one thing that he sent his son to pay the cost. It's an entire other thing for at this moment in time for him to turn his back on his son and let him die there alone. It is as if God is saying, I cannot look on the entire sins of mankind all poured out on him at once. I cannot look on it and I will turn away from it. You know, it's a hard a truth to communicate that God is in, has an inflexible justice while simultaneously understanding His grace. The odd thing that's happening here, or paradox, is that God is actually showing His grace by having inflexible justice on His Son. He's making the way for you and I to be saved. He's making sure that he can look at you and say, forgiven, all your sins have been paid for. The debt is paid in full. He can say that honestly and truthfully because he poured out his wrath on his son. You know, that's what's happening at the cross. There are three major players in place at the cross, and I want to talk about them. The first two, not nearly as significant as the third. Number one, we have Satan. Satan played a very real role of what happened at Calvary. 
You remember when Jesus was with his disciples the night before, and the Bible says that Satan entered into Judas. Remember that? And then Jesus told the demon-possessed Judas, go and do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And Judas goes, betrays Jesus, sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. There is no doubt that the hatred that these Pharisees and Sadducees had for Jesus, there's no doubt that that hatred was stirred up by Satan. Satan had a role in what took place. And so did men. Mankind. Mankind had a role to play. All the people conspiring together. You had those that were leaders of the pack, those who absolutely hated Jesus and were, 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 were oppressing everyone else to get in line and hate him with us. You had the handful of those who didn't believe it. They didn't see it. They'd even watch Jesus do good things to their family. But they were too much cowards to stand up against the mob. And so they just went along. And before you know it, something that's unthinkable happens. The very crowds of people who were following Jesus and praising him are now crying out together, crucify him and let his blood be on us and our children. We see the wickedness of the human heart and we see mankind in this playing a role in the crucifixion. But you need to understand something. Jesus said this as clearly as clear can be. No man takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down and I'll take it back up again. And so it wasn't Satan that had him nailed to the cross. It wasn't men that had him nailed to the cross. Jesus was crucified to satisfy the wrath of God. And what was being poured out on Jesus was the wrath of God for all of sin. It is an unbearable cost that Jesus was bearing on his shoulders And we see God is holy and God is just. Number three, we see what I will call the explanation of Gethsemane. Jesus, as you know, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying that night before. And Jesus prays these words. Father, if there be any other way, take this cup away from me. Right? And Jesus then said, but Lord, nonetheless, your will, not mine. If you've been in church any length of time, you're probably familiar with that story. You know, all of Jesus' ministry from the very beginning, he used this term, his hour. You remember when uh, in John chapter 2, um, the wedding had ran out of wine and Jesus' mother comes to him and says to him, son, they're, you know, they're out of wine. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, woman, what do I have to do with this? My hour has not yet come. And then as you look at the statements that he made in the three years that would follow, several times Jesus referenced his hour. 
the reason for which he was born. Now follow me here. And then he comes to the hour. The hour that he's been talking about his whole ministry, he comes to the hour and says, God, is there any way I don't have to do this? And in Luke, Luke records that Jesus was so distressed in this moment that his sweat became as drops of blood. I don't believe in biblical irony. I think God has his hand on everything. You know that Garden of Gethsemane is a place where where, uh, grapes were pressed. Gethsemane, it literally means wine press, olive press. That's what it means. It's a place where you take grapes and you squeeze the lifeblood out of them to get the juice. And I'm telling you, that's what was happening there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't the wrath of Satan that Jesus was sweating drops of blood over. It was the unrestrained wrath of God Almighty that he, as a man, was terrified to face and his sweat became his great drops of blood. And it was there on the cross that the wrath of God was squeezing him, crushing him for our sins, literally draining out his blood. Yes, I cannot say it enough if I said it a thousand times over There is an awful cost for sin. And we need to see sin the same way God sees it. Number four. The fourth thing I see from the father forsaking the son, I see the son's unswerving faithfulness to the father. We see his faith in God. In John eleven forty two, 42, Jesus said, I know that you hear me always. But now he cries out, why have you forsaken me? In John 8, 29, he said concerning his father, he that sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone. But now he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus had nothing to rest upon but God's covenant and God's promises. I want you to notice as we look at the faith of the Son in His Father, I want you to notice the two statements that come before the words, Why have you forsaken me? And let's just really meditate on them together. My God. My God. He didn't say, God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, why have you forsaken me? My God. In other words, Lord, it feels like You've left me alone. I I can't see you. I can't sense you. I feel cut off. You feel so far away. I cannot. It's as if you're gone. But you are still my God. Faith in the Father, even in the worst hours of his life. 
I want us to look at 10 verses in Psalm 22 that prophesy this moment, and I want you to see the truth that even in the darkest and loneliest of places, Jesus trusted in His Father. Psalm 22. i got to get there myself. The first 10 verses. You know, if you're a skeptic and you're, unbel- you're not real sure what you believe about God, there are few things that will be more difficult for you to overcome than the truth. That much of God's Word was written hundreds, some of it thousands of years before it came to pass. Psalm 22 was recorded, done, written down, and studied for hundreds of years before this event took place when Jesus was crucified. Look at what Psalm 22 said concerning Jesus' crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. If you, in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. For He delights in Him. Yet, yet, you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Yes, Jesus' cry was one of distress, but it wasn't one of distrust. And I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. There are times that we find ourselves in that place. Now granted, we're not forsaken by God, but there are times it feels like you're all alone. There are times in the Christian life when it just seems like God is a million miles away. And there you are alone in your hour of need in your hour of distress. It's in those moments that just like our example, just like our Savior, just like our King, we have no option and no choice but to trust in the promises of God and know that He is who He said He is. I often say, never doubt in the dark what you knew in the light. I've been saved about 20 years now. And I could count three or four times in my life, so embarrassing to say this, but it's just true, 
I can count three or four times in my life where I really questioned my faith. And it wasn't weeks. It wasn't like two or three months where I'm trying to figure out if I really believe in God. I'm talking, for me personally, I'm talking hours. But what had happened was it was as if I had just been cut off from God. I don't know how else to explain it. In fact, until you've been born again, what I'm about to say makes no sense to you and it never will. Never. It's not possible. You have to be born again. Your spirit must come to life. And you have a degree of connection again with God. And it was as if that connection was cut off and my life was back to where it was before I was saved. I wasn't sinning. I wasn't doing those things. I'm just telling you, like that sense of being cut off where I can't hear God. There's no sense of Him anywhere. It's like as if He's a million miles away from me. And, and I found myself questioning these things. Wait a second. Is, is what you've believed all this time true? Is everything you felt all those years real? Why can't I feel God now? Why can't I sense His nearness? Why does He feel such like... He feels like a foreign concept all of a sudden. He's more like an idea. I'm embarrassed to tell you that three or four times in 20 years I've been there. You want to know something? I'm not making excuses. You want to know one of the ironic things for me? It has always happened in a time of great physical sickness. Like I had the flu one time for about four days, and I just, I can't, I felt horrible. And it was like one day, in the middle of the day, I'm laying on the couch, and all of a sudden I'm just conscious. I have no consciousness of God. And I began to panic. It scared me. I'm like, I haven't felt this way and thought this way in almost 10 years. It's in those moments that I have to take my own advice and never question in the dark what I knew to be true in the light. And I remind myself that I'm not real sure where that connection went right now. I don't know why I'm having these these weird doubts But here's what I do know. Jesus Christ died on a cross. It's undisputable. And I do know that He rose from the grave. And I do know that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And I do know that Jesus is compassionate and He can understand. He can relate. I was not forsaken. He was. He can relate to what it feels like to be in that moment where you feel cut off from God, and I take the promises of God, the, the, the covenant of God, and I trust God that His grace and His mercy, it is sufficient to see me through, even in the darkest hours where we feel as if we are all alone. I see the Son's unswerving faithfulness to the Father. He still says, my God. And we need that sense of trust that even when we are in that place of darkness, He is still my God. He still hears. He still answers. He still delivers. Number five, I see our Savior being or bearing our curse. 
That's what I see happening here when the Lord is forsaken by His Father. He's bearing our curse. Simply put, we're the ones that should have been forsaken. That's what He's doing. He's stepping in your place. He's stepping in my place. He is being forsaken for us. Bearing our curse. find it fascinating than God's infinite wisdom. He found a way, He devised a plan where His holiness and His justice would stand, but He could still be loving and merciful to us. It's incredible. How? By allowing Jesus to bear our curse, to bear the weight of our sin, to take the curse that should have fallen upon us. We're the ones who sinned against God. We were the ones who were enemies of God. And yet Romans 5 tells us that while we were yet enemies, God showed His love for us in sending Christ to die for us while we were enemies. Fascinating that when I had turned my back on God, God said He would not turn His back on me. It's fascinating that when we were not lovely, God chose to love us anyways. That when we were not searching for God, God came searching for us. Why? Because the forsaking that needed to take place for all that we had done was thrown on His Son. And God said, I will forsake my son. I will put your penalty, that which you deserve, on him so that I do not have to forsake all of you. You know, I see in this willingness to be forsaken on our behalf. Number six this morning, Christ's supreme love for us on display. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Read it again. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. You know, you've heard me say this a handful of times throughout the sermon series. There is no one like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. Nobody. Greater love has no one than this. Nobody has greater love than this. And we see His love for us on complete display. He would go to the depths that he went to be forsaken by the Father for you. For you. For me. Greater love has no man than this. When I was working on this point this week, 
some lines from a very old song came to my mind that I haven't heard sung in a really, really long time. But as I was thinking about the love of God, these words came to my mind. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You want to know one of the ironies of our current day? the watered-down preaching that is ruining the church in this nation. You know one of the ironies? One of the concepts is you don't preach anymore on the blood of Jesus. You don't preach about the cross. You don't preach about this because people just want to hear about the love of God. The irony is there's not anywhere that Jesus ever demonstrated his love for us more than when he laid down his life on the cross and shed his blood for us. You know, I think one of the reasons there's so little preaching on the cross is because it doesn't make sense to a people who don't see sin for what it is. I mean, we don't take sin seriously. It's hard to sit through and hear what I said earlier about sin. It's hard to hear that your sin is so wicked that it caused the awful murder of Christ on the cross, that it caused God to pour out His wrath on someone else because of your sin. It's hard to hear that, but it's true. And so, we tend to minimize sin, and when we minimize sin, it doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus have to go through all that He went through? Why would He have to go through that? For such a little tiny sin. Everybody does it. And so we lose sight of the greatness of our sin. We lose sight of the greatness of the cost that was paid on it. We lose sight of the greatness of God. And love becomes diluted into this thing where love just means you kind of accept everybody and you just do give them things that make them happy. Like, what do you need that'll make you happy? What do you need that'll make you happy? And love's kind of been denigrated into. We don't ever hold anybody accountable. It's all about just making people feel good. What makes you feel good? Let me say that. And what makes you feel good? Well, let me say that. That's loving. It's not loving. It's amazing how somehow love has been associated with being a coward. It's not. Sometimes love does the hard thing. Sometimes love says the hard thing. Sometimes love goes to the cross. And here's what you need to know this morning. You need to know that greater love has no man than this. Nobody has ever, 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 ever loved you like Jesus. There's nobody like him. Nobody. Not your wife, not your husband, not your mom, not your dad. Nobody. Not your boyfriend, not your girlfriend, not your kids. Nobody has ever loved you like Jesus loves you. And I'm truly convinced when we see how great He loves us, it motivates us to want to honor Him in return. 
when I look at the awful cost that was paid on my behalf, when I look at the truth that He loved me when I was unlovely, when I look at the truth that He came to me and rescued me out of the miry pit of clay, when I look at what He did for me, when I look at how He paid the cost of my sins so that I could be saved, how could I not want to live for Him? Finally this morning, the seventh thing that I see when I look at the Father forsaking the Son, I see the destination of the unforgiven. And you might say, how do you see that here? Well, just look at the cost that was paid. I mean, that's what Jesus was doing, was taking on the costs, the price that is due to sinners. And so if you're not forgiven, this, the wrath of God is poured out on you when judgment comes. Let me ask it this way. What makes you think God would pour out His wrath unhindered on His own Son, but not pour it out on you? Make no mistake about it. God will pour out every ounce of wrath that He has on the unforgiven on the day of judgment. It's even worse now. It's even worse. For we know what Jesus has done. We know that there's a way. We know that God's devised a plan. We know that God stands with arms wide open and says, all who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus says to all who thirst, come to him and he will give you life-giving water. We know that God says, let all come to him. And so to say no now it's even worse. No, you're not going to be crucified just like Jesus. No, it's not going to look identical. But I'm going to tell you, the wrath of God is going to be poured out. I'm going to tell you it's more awful than we could possibly describe. And so, yes, when I look at Jesus crying out on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? When I look at the horror of it all, I see the destination of the unforgiven. And here's the application this morning, brothers and sisters. First and foremost, if you're not saved, you need to be saved. Christianity is not a decision that you need to make because it may or may not make your life better. In fact, if that's your motivation, you know, trying to maybe join the right social club of moral people so that your life can be better, you're still going to go to hell and you're wasting your time. That's not why you come. You need to be saved. You need to recognize that God is a holy God who judges sin. 
that sin is so wicked in the sight of God that the only way it could be forgiven was if Christ went through what He went through and paid the awful cost that He paid. That's how terrible it is. And you hold all that debt, the wages of all your sin, all of your lying and your cheating and your stealing and your lusting and your all of it. You hold it. And you will give an account for all of it lest God chooses to forgive it. I mean, forgive it. Wednesday night, we heard such a beautiful message here at our Wednesday night, 7 o'clock uh, gathering where, where we learned that not only does God forgive, but He forgets. He chooses to forget. It was said, there's not a list up here of your, unforgiv- of your forgiven sins. God's not up there, oh, I forgave you of this, I forgave you of that, I forgave you of that. No, He erases it, it's gone, it's cast in the sea of forgetfulness. There's no list of it. And if you are lost this morning, the only way you can be saved is if, saved is if God forgives you of your sins. Nothing could be more pressing. Nothing could be more important. There's nothing on earth that matters more than the destination of your eternal soul. There's nothing that God could do for you more possibly significant than saving your soul from an eternity in hell. Nothing could be more important. So if that is you this morning, I plead with you. Yes, I plead. I beg. God doesn't beg. God commands. The Bible says God commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands it. But I beg you this morning. I plead with you. Please don't leave in your sins. Turn from your wicked ways this morning and commit your life to Christ. Look to His sacrifice on the cross as the penalty for all your sin, the payment for all your wrongs, and trust in Him and Him only this morning.